Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Grey Viking Games. Check them out with our affiliate code link in the description. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to talk about White Green in Innistrad Midnight Hunt. White Green is the fourth best performing archetype in the format uh, with an average win rate of 57.6%, which is probably like around 2% behind uh, the best decks, like 5% ahead of the worst decks. Uh, definitely on the good end, but I don't think that it is an archetype that you want to try to draft. I think that it does well a reasonable portion of the time that people end up there, but I think that it supports very few players uh, per table. I, I actually failed to note how played it is relative to the other archetypes. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it's not especially played relative to them, but I'm not going to look it up. Uh, regardless of how frequently it's played, the reasoning that you don't want to force it will become clear, and I stand by regardless. Basically, I think that this archetype in particular is extremely reliant on uncommons. There are a ton of really, really good uncommons, both just in these colors and that do the things that this deck wants to do. And if you're not getting the uncommons because you're sharing them with someone else at the table you're, uh, and you end up needing to rely on commons, your deck is going to be really underpowered and have some really big holes. It's both the case that there just aren't very many good commons that you want to play and also that the curve of the commons that you do want kind of just sucks. Like they're just a bunch of good fours. Um, this is a problem with a lot of white decks. There are a bunch of good four mana spells. And I was hoping that Morning Patrol would kind of be the like go-to three mana common, but it's not a card that's performed very well. So that really leaves you with just like nothing. Like there, there are a lot of white three mana commons. They're just all really bad. Like Morning Patrol's the ceiling. And then you have like the Ritualist and the Sanctifier that you really, really don't want to have make your deck. And the fact that those cards are so weak just creates a really awkward curve situation for like all the white decks. With the possible exception of blue-white, because there are a lot of good blue three drops, but that's kind of uh, beside the point. So basically, they're not like the commons you want are like the good white one drops, uh, Gavity Trapper and Lunark Veteran, and then the good Coven two drops, uh, Candlegrove Witch and Harvest Sentry, and then like Eccentric Farmer, maybe Morning Patrol, and then all the good four mana spells Search Party Captain, Shadow Beast Sighting, Cleric Cathars, Gavity Silversmith. And then there are a lot of common spells that you'd think maybe I should round this deck out with like Candle Trap, Duel for Dominance, Silver Bolt, Mighty Old Ways that like make sense in this deck, say Coven. But the problem is they're just not great and you don't want very many of them because you want a really high creature density so that your Coven stuff is on. And I think that you don't really want to trade resources. So... You have a low-curve proactive deck, which makes someone think of aggressive decks. However, you are like creating forward momentum and being proactive and pressuring your opponent 
but you are very, very, very disinterested in and disincentivized from trading resources for damage. It's very rare that you want to like make an attack where you're going to throw away cards to reduce your opponent's life total because your your cards scale off each other and want to like all be around. And that means like the deck really lacks reach in the form of like, I'm going to do extra damage to you to close out this game. And so your life total or your opponent's life total is actually relatively unimportant. Uh, It's very much a board presence over life total prioritizing proactive deck. And because you're not really looking to like push damage, combat tricks are less important because you're less likely to be in a spot where you're just like, all right, I I just want to be able to like make an attack and pressure here. Basically, I think that uh, green-white in this set has a really good kind of like green-white flavor feel where you just want to like hang out and accumulate a bunch of friends and chill and like win eventually by having a better board than your opponent. And rather than playing uh, like tricks that make it so that you can attack uh, earlier, you just don't attack. You just hang out. And then if you have, there are a lot of uncommons that let you win long games if you can just like establish some kind of like stall and just like chill for a while. I'm talking about like Contortionist Troop that gives you an extra one on counter every turn. Gavany Dawn Guard that can flip back and forth and give you more things. Death Bonnet Sprout that can give you a counter every turn. Hound Tamer that can give you one more counters every turn. Dawnheart Mentor that just lets you like attack with one creature and make it big and generally just like put your opponent in a really awkward spot if you have like a lot of mana to invest and you're just kind of chilling except for like your Dawnheart Mentor powered attack. Rise Vance, which lets you, you know, build a big board. Then when you get to the really late game, build a bigger board. All of these kind of like go over the top if we can just chill for a while, like Ritual of Hope, you like get a whole bunch of creatures in play and then eventually you attack and pump all of them. This archetype really wants large games and really wants you to just like accumulate resources and objects and then start getting counters, then just kind of like kill your opponent once your guys are a lot bigger than theirs. And because you are generally able to like get more value out of just like waiting around than your opponents are in theory. You don't need to prioritize like, you know, a lot of the purpose of combat tricks is they let you go like, my opponent has one big creature, I have a bunch of small creatures, I'm going to attack with all of them, whatever you block, I'm gonna play a combat trick on. Now I've pushed a bunch of damage, but we traded cards. And the fact that you traded cards is a negative here because like you trade your combat trick for their thing now you're both down a card they use a removal spell on one of your things now you're both down another card and now that at some point in there they end up breaking up your coven synergies and making all of your cards weaker whereas if instead of playing the combat trick to trade cards you just put another guy in play your coven situation is better insulated and your cards are like better positioned to snowball. So one thing that we see here is that unlike in every other white archetype, Gavany Trapper, the Tapper, is the highest performing common because it both lets you interact with your opponent's cards 
while having an extra creature on the battlefield and ensuring that you have Coven because it has a very unusual amount of power. Also, in the late game, when you do decide that it's time to attack, it'll, it does the end of your turn tap, untap, tap something, where it's if kind of functioning as a like a really weird slant two for one where your one card has handled their two blockers. Aggressive, like proactive deck that is looking to get damage in early just because you can, and it puts your opponent on the back foot and makes it harder for them to turn the corner, which makes it more likely that you get into this board stall, which gives you more time to accumulate value from your value over time cards, then let you attack when your opponent can't handle your attack. And in that way, this archetype actually kind of preys on the zombie tokens because you're looking to just kind of sit around with a bunch of reasonably large creatures. The zombie tokens can't really profitably attack you. And so what happens is when you play against like some sort of blue or black deck, especially blue-black, you accumulate guys, they accumulate zombies. You both have like a lot of objects in play, but your objects can block theirs and their objects can't block yours. And at some point, alpha striking is good for you and useless for that. That's, that's kind of the hope anyway. That's the big picture strategy stuff. That's almost just the whole thing. The, the rest is like little details. Like, I, I really want to emphasize that like, the primary takeaway when you're thinking about green-white should be don't force it. And that applies both to the draft and the gameplay. Let it come to you. Take it easy. If, you're, if, if the good green and white cards are flowing, take them. Don't like necessarily be like, okay, I have uh, a Dawnheart Mentor. That's a Coven card. So now I'm green-white. Just be like, I have a Dawnheart Mentor. That's one of the best green commons great. It's going to be really powerful no matter where I am. Take another green card or whatever. And then if you get past, you know, like a powerful white uncommon, a dual craft trainer or a ambitious farmhound, Gavany Dawnguard, something like that. Okay. Now I have white cards. And I think, you know, if you see, especially like a late Dawnheart Warden, that's the green, white, gold, three, three, that would be a sign that no one else is in green, white. And again, there's a lot of power at the among the uncommons. Dawnheart Mentor, Rise of the Ants, Ambitious Farmhand, Dawnheart Wardens, Dual Craft Trainer, Hound Tamer, Clear Shot, Contortionist Troop, to some extent Join the Dance, Death Bonnet Sprout, Borrowed Time. It's a lot of just like premium uncommons that uh, exist in those colors. I know that it can be kind of hard to, when I just like list a bunch of uncommons, go like, okay, that's a lot of good uncommons, but like, doesn't every color have a bunch of good uncommons? I don't, I don't know how long this list is before it's impressive. This is an above average number of good uncommons. Also, these uncommons do play really well together. And uh, like they, there's a lot of stuff here that's like good at coven, good at enabling coven, good when you like get into this like board stall situation. So there is power and synergy. The power and synergy is just at uncommon instead of common, which makes it support far fewer players per table. So don't look to draft this unless it's coming, then draft it. And then when you're playing, do attack when you can, but don't try to like... You don't want to get into the mindset of like, I'm an aggro deck, I need to make an attack this turn. Pressure them when you can. Once they have their defenses, 
then it's then you want to transition into all right it's the build up time so now let's just build up and i think i'm going to be able to build up better than you then once you've built up enough it's not costly to attack start attacking again so like the you should expect that a very common play pattern for your green white deck will be like aggression phase withdraw build up aggression phase two that actually closes the game which is like a tricky mindset enable it involves like you know when you're in an aggressive mindset to say oh okay i can't attack anymore and that's fine it's very easy to if you're playing an aggressive deck stress out about like uh oh i thought i was the beatdown. now i can't attack i bet this game is slipping out of hand and you want to draft your deck such that that's not going to be the case you want to have some impactful cards, potentially some expensive stuff, or at least mana sinks. It's it's better if you can do it with mana sinks, with like your Dawnheart mentors and round tamers, instead of actually putting a bunch of like five and six mana spells in your deck. But regardless, you do want to have the ability to play a long game. I guess the other thing to talk about is the kind of like sub archetype that see mentioned in chat that I do think is real and worth talking about, which is sometimes you're just about playing to the board and getting your coven stuff and everything. But there is also overlap between the white disturbed creatures and the green flashback enabling. Both of those overlap. So like theoretically, Green blue is the flashback archetype, according to you know like those slides that wizards played during the draft portion of worlds or put in booster packs or whatever to tell you what's going on in the colors and limited. And blue white is disturbed creatures. So those are both graveyard themes. And so then green white has the theme of coven, but green and white both exist with blue in this graveyard centric space. So if you take the green cards that want to work with the blue cards and the white cards that want to work with the blue cards, but you don't take the blue cards, you can actually combine them into a green-white graveyard deck where your eccentric farmers and maybe even tapping at the windows are enabling you to just like get extra creatures in the form of these white disturbed creatures that then support Coven. And also, you know, I talked about you're aggressive and then you're sitting back. Well, if you're aggressive and sitting back and your opponent can't really turn the corner because you've pressured them, if you have some random little flyers that you got from Disturb, uh, that's a good way to be clocking your opponent while you're just kind of chilling. That is a meaningful optional sub-archetype. And also, if you are that sub-archetype, pay a lot of attention to farmers and then picking up jack-o'-lanterns and evolving wilds, and then you can potentially splash blue cards, especially the uncommons that play with both of those themes. And then that leads into the like Bant graveyard deck that can exist in any combination of color balances among those colors. Worth noting uh, with regard to how legit that graveyard centric strategy is, I would point out that on the uh, 17 land stats for just like um, how frequently uh, green white cards win. Uh, tapping at the window actually has a higher win rate than a lot of cards that would surprise you. Duel for Dominance, Candle Trap, Silver Bolt. The, the common removal that you have access to 
except weirdly enough for Sungold Barrage. Tapping the window outperforms those cards. It is played less, I'm pretty sure, because it's only played, I would expect, in the decks that are trying to do things with the graveyard. But, and, and I mean, obviously, it's still a card that underperforms relative to the archetype's overall win rate. It's not a very strong card. This is largely just an argument that you don't want to be prioritizing those removal spells that do even worse than tapping at the window. But also, if you've drafted green-white, I bet you've put Duel for Dominance and Candle Trap and Silverbolt in your deck at some point. And tapping at the window is around those cards in power level. Again, if you are in the graveyard space, if you have, you know, maybe Rise of the Ants or Death Bonnet Sprout or any kind of like good white disturbed creatures, you know, stuff that, stuff that cares about your graveyard, and then you start accumulating more of it, you can eventually get to the point where you want to use tapping at the window. Most of the time, you will not want to use that. Most of the time, you're going to be doing the coven thing, but there is, you know, especially, it's really going to largely hinge on having a table where eccentric farmers are wheeling and you end up with multiple eccentric farmers. That's the best reason, if you're green, to look to do graveyard stuff. And then because that's the best reason to look to do graveyard stuff, that gets back to the point about, well, maybe you want to splash blue or maybe you want to splash red for Seize the Storm or splash black for the black-green reanimation spell, which weirdly enough, actually, despite, well, because of, I would suspect, having an extremely small sample size is actually the best performing uncommon in green-white. The the black-white zombify card actually performs better than Don Hart Mentor with a tiny sample size. But that's another card that you can splash in the uh, graveyard-centric version. If you have a bunch of farmers, they'll let you just put whatever lands you want in your deck and then uh, use all the graveyard synergy stuff well. I think those are like the two primary ways to approach green-white. It's like kind of coven-centric and then graveyard-centric, almost certainly still caring about coven. And then... Uh, yeah, also definitely want to note Sun Gold Barrage, because I think that it's, I suspect, uh, this is again the kind of thing that I could have paid more attention to the stats and noted as to like whether people actually play it less than their other removal spells. My guess would be that people play Sun Gold Barrage much less than the other removal spells, uh, myself included, but people who draw Sun Gold Barrage do win more than people who draw the other removal spells, which would lead me to believe that people who put Sun Gold Barrage in their deck are probably... Uh, doing better than people who put the removal spells that win less often in their deck. So I don't think you want a lot of Sun Gold Barrages, but maybe pay attention to that as underrated card slash good place to go if you are looking to have a little bit of removal in your green-white decks. What you really want, obviously, is just Clear Shot, which is miles better than everything else, and then Borrowed Time is a reasonable alternative. And then again, to not worry about having too many uh, removal spells. As far as combat tricks, uh, surprisingly or not surprisingly, depending on whether you lean more on intuitions and conventional wisdom, we're looking at the stats, and whether you've updated your conventional wisdom based on one mana white tricks always overperforming. Blessed Defiance is the combat trick with the best win rate by a lot, ahead of even Defend the Celestis by a little under 1%, but then Defend the Celestis is better than the other ones. I, as always, don't know exactly how much to tell you to play Blessed Defiance based on that. It obviously still goes super late. You can still get lots of them. I don't think you want lots of them. I do think it's like 
reasonably nice to have one in your deck a lot of the time. I, I would, I mean, I still would just say overall, don't prioritize combat tricks, but it's okay to play a few of them. And I think that covers my notes. So chat, feel free to start queuing up any questions you have that I haven't addressed. And uh, while I'm allowing those to populate, uh, I'd like to thank Jack, David, and Carl for supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, as well as all of my other patrons. Uh, They're my newest patrons, but thank you everyone for everyone who is supporting for your continued support. It means a lot to me, obviously. If you aren't a supporter, I would encourage you, of course, as always, to give the page a look if you haven't, see if you like any of the offerings there, and join my uh, list of supporters. Questions from Twitch. How do you feel about the Flash 3-1 for this archetype? And does the sack ability matter at all? So it is best when you are low on Harvestide sentries, and therefore the three power is likely to help with Coven. It obviously not having an evasion makes it pretty hard for it to attack very well. And as I mentioned, you really don't want to trade resources. So 3-1 isn't the best stat line. Uh, so I would see it as largely fillery. The sack ability is obviously better than not having it, but doesn't tip the needle a lot. Candlegrove Witch and Harvestide Sentry are both way, way, way better. And then it's also kind of just like a bad Outland Liberator, which is just another card that exists that you can have instead. So filler playable if you need it for your curve or if you need three power for Coven, but definitely a card that I would be, you know, I'm looking to take it late in the draft and play it or not play it as needed, and I'd be perfectly happy to leave it in my sideboard. Next question. Yes, I have touched on Sun Gold Barrage being the most successful common removal spell. Next question. Green reach creatures have horrible stats. How do you stop getting flown over reliably in this archetype? I agree that green reach creatures have horrible stats and that this archetype probably doesn't want them. You can play Soul Guide Griff, which is a pretty good flying blocker and has less horrible stats. You can uh, also play some Disturbed Creatures, but most of them aren't very good at blocking Flyers. I think mostly you hope that if your opponent is playing Flyers, that they are not very good at defending themselves and you just like race them. Uh, obviously the thing that I was saying about, you know, hanging back and having like a buildup period in the middle of the game before you start attacking again, that's as needed. And the hope is that the decks that are good at pressuring you with flyers are bad at defending themselves such that you have to switch into that space. There are definitely draws with green white where you just run someone over with a Dawnheart Warden or a Dawnheart Mentor or even some uh, Candlegrove Witches and Harvestide Sentries or... Uh, Gavany Silversmith or whatever. And yeah, flying creatures aren't great blockers, so hope that you are attacking. Next question. While drafting, how much attention should I pay to drafting creatures with different powers? I think that you should pay a considerable amount of attention to it. Specifically, I think your first priority is obviously just like taking all of the good uncommons, but that then once you have taken all the good cards, you can pretty easily round out your like remaining weaker cards by paying attention to like 
oh, I'm going to take this Celestis Sanctifier or something. Like, I guess you you hope not to play Celestis Sanctifier, but maybe, all right, normally I take Morning Patrol over Cathar Commando, but I have a lot of twos and not a lot of threes, so I'll take the Cathar Commando over the Morning Patrol. That kind of space where for cards that don't ver- matter very much, don't change your win rate a lot, you take the thing that's going to give you better uh, size diversity. Clarion Cathars, uh, the card that gives you a 3-3 and a 1-1, is really good for enabling Coven. If your numbers are bad, that will often save you. So maybe you like take one of those over like a search party captain if things are looking pretty desperate or whatever. You, you should never give up like a premium card out of fear of Coven, you should use the, okay, it's late in the draft, I'm seeing a couple of mediocre cards, kind of like rounding space to, or even just like, you know, when do I take a trick versus when do I take a creature, air toward the creature when it's a creature that'll help you uh, round out your Coven stuff best. Next question, what anti-graveyard cards do you think are worth looking for in green-white? First pick, first choice would be Death Bonnet Sprout. Second choice would be Soul Guide Griff. Third choice would be Jack O' Lantern if I'm trying to splash. Fourth choice would be Candle Lit, the the Crosswit, the 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 Scarecrow if I'm trying to splash and my deck's not great. I think that you don't necessarily need to go out of your way to worry about graveyard hate, but those those are the ones that are reasonably strong and available. Uh, there's a note that the 1-1 one, one wolf that can pump to a 3-3 is another uh, good way to turn on Coven, which I definitely agree with. If you are lacking in uh, creatures with odd amounts of power, it does a nice job of being able to give you a 1 or a 3 as needed for Coven. And it's like, you know, not exciting, but fine filler creature in similar space to uh, Cathar Commando and Morning Patrol. Next question: Can we talk about combat tricks a little more? How many do you want, and which ones? Uh, you want not very many, and you theoretically want. So their theoretical win rate order is Bless Defiance over Defend Celestis over Ritual of Hope, and then I'm not sure about the order of Flare of Faith versus uh, Might, but really I think that you don't want very many and then like how much you prioritize ritual of hope in particular is i think the one that changes the most depending on how good you are at going wide and just like what your total creature count is is going to be a big factor there but also obviously like how many of your card your cards make two or more creatures more primarily coming from join the dance i've had super good experiences with ritual of hope if you have Join the Dance, Dawn Heart Mentors, uh, Claire and Cathars. I think that it's worth prioritizing, kind of like building around Ritual of Hope. I, I think the ceiling is like pretty high on that card and that building around it, like it asks you to build a deck. It asks you to build a good deck because it wants you to not play a lot of other tricks and to just like play a lot of creatures, which is what you should be doing anyway, which kind of leads back to the how many tricks do you want? And I think the answer is as few as you can get away with, kind of. It's probably like better to have one than zero. I, I would say around three is likely where I'd be looking to end up or expecting to end up. 
Next question, are there any standouts in the data where I'm still biasing toward my own experience as far as my pick order goes? Um, so cards that I'm drafting substantially differently than their win rates. Biggest oversight in my preparations time is that I didn't do the standard overperformer, underperformer uh, frequency of play check. Sorry about that. Nothing, nothing stands out to me as like a pet card in this archetype. I also haven't drafted the archetype very much, honestly. I do, like I said, I, I think that it's really something you only want to be when the draft kind of forces you into it because I, I really want the color pair to be wide open if I'm going to do it. That means I just like don't have enough experience to have like, oh, well, this is my like secret pet card that people don't know about here or something. Next question. If you have enough removal... Will you not play any tricks or are tricks still good enough solo? There aren't a lot of removal spells I want, but I mean, like if instead of playing any tricks, I could, or if, if all of my tricks were clear shots, I, I would be happy with like that. You know, if I have three clear shots and it means I play no other tricks or removal, that sounds great. Like if my deck could just be 20 creatures and three clear shots, I would feel pretty good about that. If it were two clear shots in a borrowed time, I would also be fine with that. If instead I ended up playing two clear shots at borrowed time and a defense Celestis or a Blast Defiance or any other pump spell, that would be fine too. I'm really not someone who is like very concerned with like exact counts about like, oh, I want this many removal spells and this many tricks. I, I really just want like, it's not like I just want strong cards. I do think that, you know, context matters, but I care a lot more about like synergy, game plan, curve, kind of curve the most of those. And then like literally what do my cards do is is a lower priority for me. It's it's much more okay, well, I have this many tricks. I have this much removal. Those are going to inform how I'm playing and uh what I'm expecting to happen in the game, like, oh, I don't have a lot of removal, so I need to make sure that I'm prioritizing some way to end the game in case my opponent has a bomb, or, oh, I have a lot of combat tricks. That means that, like, if I don't have one in my hand, I can, like, realistically wait around until I draw one versus, like, okay, I can't do that. I have to have some other plan. But it's much less like a formula where it's, like, I want this many of this, this many of this, this many of this. I try to be a little bit more flexible about that as long as my curve makes sense. Next question. Storm the Festival, uh, that's the six mana rare that puts things into play, does about 5% better in white-green than blue-green. Do I think it needs to be built to, built to in white-green or will it just naturally work in white-green? So obviously this card is primarily looking for you to have a lot of permanence so that it has a lot of choices about what to put into play. And blue-green, being the flashback deck, is a lot more likely to have spells that aren't great hits for it, whereas the raw number of permanents you should have in green-white is higher. Also, I mentioned that green-white is looking to play a large game where you have a lot of objects, and it's looking to hang out. This card is very good at just giving you more objects. It gives you two objects for one card before you even get to thinking about potentially flashing it back. And if you are playing a long game, then it's more likely that you get to the six mana where you can cast this thing and hang out and then win with the objects that it gives you. So it makes sense to me, given what I've said about how green-white plays, that this card would be a pretty good fit there. As for do you need to build around it, it's definitely, you know, the more 
expensive cars rather than cheap. The more expensive permanence you have, the better it is. Also, the more eccentric farmers you have so that you can make your land drops more uh, consistently, um, the better it is. It is a card that makes sense to me as a like reasonable top-end card. I certainly don't think it's like a priority or a card that you should take early, and I don't think that it's worth going far out of your way for. Like I think if you put two more five drops in your deck to make this card better, that it's going to make your deck worse more than better, and you should just accept that you'll hit slightly weaker things than that sometimes. But that would be my commentary on that card. Next question is, how many sources should we aim for when playing Unnatural Growth? I like the question. When counting sources for something like that, it's always kind of tricky in terms of like what exactly counts as a source, like how much of a source do you count a farmer as and stuff. It also depends on like how good is your deck at playing a long game. Like I want to say that the way that Green White plays uh, unnatural growth should be pretty good here because I think that, you know, like there are a lot of aggro decks where, oh, well, if I can't kill them by turn six or seven, I'm likely to lose the game before turn nine because I can't defend myself very well. And if I'm going to die before turn nine, I'm not going to be able to cash this card frequently enough. And so it's not going to be good. But if with green white, you're like, well, I would like to kill someone on turn eight. If I fail, I don't think they're going to kill me before turn 11. If I haven't killed them by turn 12, they're probably going to kill me on turn 13. Um, but like, if I cast this on turn 11, I'm definitely just killing them when I do it. Th those numbers are somewhat made up, obviously. But the point is, because your creatures are kind of like a little bit hardier, better at blocking, and you just have like a few more late game tools, it's more likely that like it's going to take your opponent longer to turn the corner and close the game in the games where you're not able to be killing them. And so that gives you more time to eventually hit your source and uh, play on natural growth and turn the game around. Also, you have a really high creature count. Um, your creatures are reasonably big. It's pretty likely that unnatural growth will flip the game around when you cast it. So the fact that unnatural growth is just better in green white than it is in most other decks means that you can get away with fewer sources so that like if I can't cast it as early, it still might be worth it. I've never played the card. I don't have a great, like my, my answer to this is guesswork. I would guess that it is okay if you are uh, just playing it with nine forests and hoping to draw them. I would be pretty hesitant to play it with eight and no other fixing. Eight and a farmer is not quite nine, so a little bit worse than nine, but might work, especially if you have something else, um, like a rejuvenator or whatever. But again, uh, it's guesswork. The more you have, the better. And some of it's going to depend on like, well, what's your next best card and how good is it in your version of the deck exactly and st uh, stuff like that. But yeah, I, I think I think farmers are the most likely way to have a mana base, like a reasonable two color mana base that can uh, reasonably easily cast on natural growth. Would I play Sigarda's Splendor? That is a great question. I played it early in draft and it didn't do anything and I did not like it. I've played against it in draft and uh, mostly just laughed at it and killed my opponents. I played it in sealed once and it was great. I could imagine decks that I felt like, you know, it definitely plays very well in the put them on the back foot and then hang out for a while play pattern that I described. 
certainly if it's going to depend a little bit on, you know, if my opponent has a flyer, can I ever trigger this type questions? I would say I don't prioritize it or think it's very good in draft, but I can imagine decks where I would play it. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in and I'll be back next week with whatever the patrons tell me to talk about. And I'm going to keep this uh, ending brief. So thanks and bye, everybody. Thank you.